0: Well, welcome to Rev. If it's your first time here, we're really pleased to have you. Uh, As Rich mentioned, my name's Andy, and uh, today I'll be preaching from the Bible. Uh, As a church, we've been going through a series looking at what it means to be the church, not just the building that we meet in, but the people of God as the church. And today I'm going to be touching on the subject of being the bride of Christ. Uh, So we're going to be reading from Ephesians. Chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, and it should be up on the screen. I was thinking we could read it together. So, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of his church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ... And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your words. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you lead and teach through me. And I pray, Lord, you would help us to love Jesus more than we did yesterday. Amen. Uh, so today I'm going to touch on three things. The first is the forgotten bride. The second is the lost name of the bride. And the third is the bride that serves. Now we're going to play a quick quiz. I've got a series of images that all relate to films that relate to brides. And see if you can guess which ones they are. So can we get the first image? Anyone know what that is? <laughs> Mamma mia, Yes. Second image, bridesmaids, it's actually my wife's favorite film, uh, runaway bride, and we've got, we got one more, my big fat gritty, there we go, now whether it's films like we see in Hollywood, if you could get the next slide, we've got a lot of them, or whether it's magazine covers that are littered on the shelves in shops, or maybe it's even like this week that we've seen the royal wedding of Lady Gabriella, we know that undoubtedly our culture is obsessed with brides. Um, one thing I really love about this photo, actually, is that everyone is smiling except for no, sorry, this guy, who obviously <laughs> does not want to be in this photo. <laughs> so our culture is obsessed with brides, Wedding days, according to hitchedwife.org, obviously I go on that often, um, approximately £10 billion is spent on weddings in the UK every year. That's a lot of money. I'd love to have a bit of that. Um, and it's undoubtedly that we can say that our culture is very good at celebrating brides. But one thing that happens, which is slightly unusual, is that after the wedding day, We stop referring to these women as brides, don't we? And I want to ask the question, why is that? Other than the obvious title change, why do we lose the title bride? I think maybe one reason is that the wedding day itself is often reminisced. Uh, We think about what has happened in the past as the event, and we should, it's a beautiful day where we have two people exchanging vows and committing themselves to one another. We have friends and family that have gathered together to celebrate the union. We've got an amazing dress. We've got lovely food and maybe even a party afterwards. But I think because we often reminisce about the wedding day and we treat it as an event in the past, then everything that might relate to that wedding day, we would treat likewise. And so the danger is that we can see the bride as a one-time event. Maybe another reason is that because our culture has such a high view of the wedding day, we often have a low view of marriage. When was the last time you picked up one of those magazines and found a double-page spread celebrating 30 years of marriage? When did you watch a film where we went beyond the wedding day and we got into the nitty-gritty reality of what it looks like to be married? Very often, we're presented with a cheating scandal or divorce. You see, the culture is summed up really well. The wedding day is a public spectacle to celebrate. The marriage is a private strain to cover up. It's as if we've taken that diamond on a ring and we've exchanged it for that ball on a chain. And so I want to help us today to see that the term bride should not be forgotten. And why is that? Because God calls his people A bride. I'm just going to drink some water. You see, throughout scripture, God has referred to his people as a bride. In the book of Jeremiah, we see these exchanging of voices described as the voice of mirth, which is like sort of this old-fashioned term for like deep-seated joy and the voice of gladness, that God, is, God and his people are represented by these voices Uh, We've seen previously in months uh, through the Song of Songs the passionate union of two lovers as an allegory for Christ's love for his church. Uh, Even in the New Testament we see in the book of Revelation um, this marriage supper of the Lamb where God is finally united with his people. And there's a lot more to mention throughout the Bible, but I think probably the most memorable story of them all is the book of Hosea. I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with that story. It's basically where God calls this prophet Hosea to go and find himself a wife who is an adulterous woman and to marry her. And the reason for this is God wants to portray his heartbreak over his people's unfaithfulness to him. As the story progresses, we see that this bride goes to and fro to other lovers and betrays Hosea over and over and over again, and eventually she finds herself in slavery. And so we have to ask ourselves, why has the bride got to a place like this? How has she fallen into slavery? How has she found herself in this position? Well, the answer is, the bride has forgotten her name. See, it's not just our culture that has lost the term of bride, But often, God's people throughout history have forgotten their name as a bride. And so why is it important that we remember this name? Because if we forget our name, we forget who we are. In the Bible, um, we see that names have a powerful significance. We touched on it earlier in some of the words that came through in the song time. But it's understood that names are intrinsically attached to people's identities in Scripture The people of God have been given various names throughout history which all relate to God's declaration over them of who they are. We see individual prophets, um, important figures throughout Scripture who are blessed by their names and what those names hold. And even God himself blesses himself with specific, special, reserved names that relate to who he is. And so as the people of God forgot their name... They looked elsewhere for a new one. They tried to find a new identity, one that wouldn't satisfy and eventually would lead them into slavery as well. They turned to foreign gods, they turned to other lovers and they suffered the same fate as Hosea's wife did. They were led into slavery. They lost their identity and as a result they lost their name we see in the book of Hosea, God says, they were once my people, now they're not my people. They were once shown mercy, now they have no mercy. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, how do, they get that, how do they get themselves into that place as well? Why is it that they've forgotten their name in the first place? Was it purely that they were just lured by other passions and desires and lost sight of it? Was it that they just didn't like the name they were given in the first place? I'm sure a lot of you here love the names or are okay with the names that your parents gave you, unless you're called something like Moist. But <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, the people of God didn't despise the name they were given. The issue was that the reason they forgot their name was because they forgot God's name. They forgot their name because they forgot God's name. See, when you forget God's name, you forget who he is and so i want us to rediscover today the name the god that god has for himself which is husband and bridegroom if you feel your love for jesus is dwindling that your commitment to him has dragged a little bit that you feel a bit tired unmotivated uninspired by your relationship with god you feel a bit skeptical maybe in a rut maybe you're just a bit bored can I invite you to rediscover God's name? Because it will not only show you who God is, but it will inform you of who you are in light of his name. And so God's made it so that he's given us the name and given him the name that would be so tightly knitted together that belong to the most intimate relationship that we know, husband and wife. So when we get into Ephesians, we come to this shocking revelation that as Paul's addressing married couples in the church in Ephesus on how they should treat one another and how they should conduct themselves, he's saying the climax of this all is a picture, this profound mystery, of God's love for his people, of God's commitment to his bride, his church. Many of the church fathers throughout history would agree that at the center of the gospel is a love story. It's a story about a bridegroom chasing his bride, winning her back, wooing her. It's about Christ and the church. And so when you understand that the relationship the church has with God is marital, it changes everything. Theologian Michael Reeves, he puts it like this. Christ had been a distant figure, doing out his grace from afar, approachable only through other mediators, such as priests and saints. Before him, one could have never have confidence or no intimacy. But if Christ is the church's loving bridegroom, what place is there for mediators between him and us? And what now would the church want from him? Not some thing called grace, but the bridegroom himself, freely offered. The reformer, Martin Luther, adds, Let us oft think of this nearness between Christ and us. If we have once given our names to him, and not be discouraged for any sin or unworthiness in us, who sues a wife for debt when she is married? Therefore answer all accusations thus, Go to Christ, if you have anything to say to me, go to my husband. At the centre of the gospel, we not only see the dissolving of the debt of sin, we see this exchanging of two parties. We see God and his people giving themselves over to one another. And so Paul tells us frequently in this passage that husbands and wives should give themselves over to each other. For the wife, it's to submit. And for the husband, demonstrating headship by laying down his life as service. So let us realize today that the relationship the church has with Christ is one of priority. Just as marriage is a relationship of priority, the relationship that we have as the church with Jesus is one of priority. One that means that we come to him and submit as the bride, and that he comes to us as our beloved. So, Paul paints really beautifully, doesn't he, in this passage, how the husband and the wife become one. All that is his is mine. All that is mine is his. Wives, submit to your husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives as you would love yourself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but cherishes it and nourishes it. Therefore a man and woman shall unite and become one flesh. Now for some of you when we were reading that passage, there was a word that came up that probably made you feel a little bit uncomfortable. And the word was submit. You see, we can read that word with a bit of a skewed lens, I think. Uh, We can picture something like this. When we think of submission. Hopefully it will come up. I finally got some wrestling in a sermon. (laughs) Um, We picture something like this where there's two parties who are fighting for dominance and eventually one of them succumbs to the other. Now I want us to know that that is not the picture Paul is painting here when he talks about submission. He's not talking about this. Submit is not a dirty word. Let's just put it out there. Submit is not a dirty word. Our culture would tell us it is. I'm going to show you that it's not. See, after this command that Paul gives, Paul mentions the word love six times. And then we pick up on themes like this. Self-sacrificial service. Perfecting. Cleansing. Washing. Presenting. Splendour. Holiness. Without blemish. Cherishing. Nourishing. Oneness. Do you know all those themes relate to the role of the husband. I don't know about you, but if you would submit yourself to someone like that, I'd be quite happy. The musician Stephen the Levite says, They say it's a ball and chain. I say they misheard. I've never felt more free than when I'm with her. They say it's a ball and chain. I say they misheard. I've never felt more free than when I'm with her. The reality is, the Bible's really clear about submission. We're not going to skirt around it. The picture is of Christ to the church, which means being subordinate and obeying. It has nothing to do with force or oppression. But as the Son happily submits himself to the father as his head. And as the church happily submits itself to Christ, who is its head, so the wife happily submits herself to the husband, who is her head. It doesn't speak of inferiority or weakness, but as we've seen in the passage, it's quite the opposite. It's the order that God has set in place. And when it's done well, It's spiritually very powerful. In marriage, we play roles beyond ourselves. For the husband, he plays Jesus. And for the wife, she plays the church. And this becomes our magnetic north. And it keeps both of our eyes set on the eternal wedding. As well as keeping our attitudes and our conduct holy and orderly. In our earthly marriages. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 says. But I want you to understand. That the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. There is real joyful submission. In God's idea of submission. In the divine marriage. Between God and his church. We see Jesus gives all of us. Gives himself to us and we give all of ourselves to him. Jesus takes all of us, and we give all of ourselves to him. But then we have to ask the question, well, what does the church have that we could offer to Jesus? What do we have that we could offer to Jesus? The answer is nothing. We offer nothing of value to Jesus. See, we're ruined, lost, spiritually adulterous people. We're like Goma, Hosea's wife, a bride who's gone to and fro to other lovers, other passions, and eventually we've become slaves to our sin, to our flesh. See, there's no beauty in us to offer to Jesus. There's no portion that we could share with this bridegroom. We bring only our sin, our weakness, our failures, and our debt. Now this will humble us as a church. Why? Because we're unworthy to be called his bride. What impressiveness do we have that could please the holiness of God? What good works have we done that could satisfy the righteousness of God? You see, we're a bit like a bride in a dress who's gone through a tough mudder on her way to a wedding day. Now, before everyone starts calling me a moaning myrtle or Debbie Downer, <laughs> this actually can give us a lot, a lot of confidence and comfort knowing this. How on earth can we know that this will give us confidence? Well, because just as I said earlier on, we remember God's name. God's name is Bridegroom. And what significance then does that have for us? Well, let's think about God's. He's holy. He's set apart. He's spotless, without blemish. He's good in every way. He's righteous. He's without evil or sin. This God would plunge to such depths to purchase a bride like us. See, what joy would well up inside you in light of this love, that that God would go to such lengths to purchase for himself a ruined bride. See, it's nothing that we've offered to him, but it's everything that he has offered to us. And if that is true, then the implications are that we have free access to God. If God is our bridegroom and the church is the bride, then we have free access to God. I'm going to paraphrase Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's chosen bride? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for his bride. The command we see in Ephesians, husband, give up your lives for your wives. If the church is God's bride then it came at a cost. Jesus laid down his body for his bride. He was beaten, he was bruised, he was mocked, he was tortured, he was killed. So that by his blood, we might be washed clean. So that by his blood, our sins might be removed. That we might be pre- presented to him as forgiven And righteous. This is the unusual thing. In the divine marriage, as the church comes to Christ as the bride, the bridegroom takes off his garments and then he dresses his bride in them. Jesus covers our shame, he gives us his righteousness. In Hosea's story, we see he goes and he buys his bride. He buys her out of slavery. He brings her home. He covers her. And eventually they unite. But as we all know, we're not perfect. We're not the finished article. And Jesus is continuing his work with us. We're still being perfected. We're still being nourished and cherished by him. The Great thing is the Holy Spirit's there and he's rejoicing. He's like, yes, this is what I'm about. He loves to work on us. Ultimately, Jesus wants to make us beautiful. He speaks to us tenderly with his words. He woos us. And he's committed to bringing us to the completion of that picture, of that beautiful bride, that one day we will be presented to him, perfect, spotless, righteous. Righteous. And so it's no surprise that God would use this picture, this language of a bridegroom and a bride and being presented. The most climactic moment, I think, of a wedding day is when the groom sees his bride. isn't it? If you've ever been to a wedding, it's that moment where everyone's look, like, not really sure who to look at. Do we look at the groom and he's crying or do we look at the bride and see her dress? I think God is deliberately trying to evoke that feeling and saying, you know that moment when they see each other? That's how I feel about my church. That passionate love. And so, the church's primary role is not to make itself look good or to feel good about itself. See, here at Rev, we have our our vision statements, our big four, you know, make 300 big people, resourcing the wider church, Planting in churches across North London and in church planting into the nations. All of this is not an attempt to make Rev look good or feel good about itself. All of this is Jesus working on us to make us beautiful. He wants to wipe away all the muck, He wants to get rid of all the sin, He wants to cleanse us, make us beautiful. And it all culminate at the marriage supper of the Lamb where God is united with his people, where he comes face to face with his people, with his bride. And so if Jesus lays down his life for us, if he continues to sanctify us so that we might be presented in splendor, without blemish, what must the church do in light of that? What do we collectively do in light of this knowledge? Well, we submit. We submit to him. As a church, we submit to Jesus. And what, would that, what does that look like practically? I've got four points here. One, as a church, we repent. See, repentance is not just the start of your journey of faith. Repentance happens all the way through your life with Jesus. It's that continual decision to say, I don't want that, I want you. I'm not going to go my own way, I'm going to submit to you, Lord. Repentance should have happen on a daily basis. It should be a recognition of, I have these inclinations to go elsewhere, but Lord, I'm choosing not to go there, instead, I'm coming to you. And we need to do that collectively. There might be things in the church where we have to say, well, we need to repent of this and come to you instead, Lord. We need to be faithful to Jesus. We need to obey him as he asks. Number two, we sit under the authority of his words. We see the picture here in Ephesians of the husband washing his wife through with the words. We need to collectively sit under God's words to be submitted to it and let him work on us. Let him work on us through the scriptures. Let him cleanse us and make us beautiful. We do that either in our quiet times, we do it in our running partners, might do it in GC. And then we'll do it through appointed teachers where we gather together as one body. Number three, we commune with God in prayer. See in Jeremiah that voice of the mirth and of gladness. See, in prayer, they're both heard. Those voices are loud. They're singing. God's voice is heard. God's bride's voice is heard. Uh, throughout history, prayer has been called lots of things. Uh, if you're a John Calvin fan, the chief exercise of faith, pretty fancy. Um, others just call it talking with God. I think the best description I've found is communion. It's intimate relating with God that just can't help but spill out into words of like affirmation, adoration, celebration, humility. There's real intimacy in prayer. We do that alone with him in our own times. Again, we do it in GTs and running partners, but we have to do it together, collectively, as one bride if you haven't been to the Tuesday morning prayer meetings, can I say please go? Please go. I'm not trying to plug a message from the elders. I'm, this is from me. Please go to the Tuesday prayer morning meetings because if we're not there, that voice of mirth is not singing. That voice of mirth is not singing. The gladness is there. But where's the bride? The bride has gone silent. Let's pray together. Number four, we serve. We submit ourselves to one another. Um, to the married people in here, in the room, husbands, the way you treat your wife will be a lesson to you on how you treat God's bride. The way you treat your wife will be a lesson to you on how you treat God's bride. Wives, the way you submit to your husband will be a lesson to you on how the church should submit to God. And it's really important that the church across the board gets to see marriages doing this. If we don't see it happening, then we miss out on a picture of the gospel, don't we? We miss out on this profound mystery. When we see husbands and wives doing it well, the whole church sees something of the gospel happening. If you're single, the way you serve the church, you are God's hands and feet to his bride. You are partaking in what Jesus is doing to perfect her. You're an extension of his grace. And so regardless whether you're married or single, we are all equally God's bride and we should be serving. So it's really important that we're connected to Rev. That might look really different from each of us. We might be in different circumstances, life situations. But the most important thing is that we feel connected to this bride and when we are connected God works on us together so make yourself available whatever circumstances whatever grace you have on you to do make yourself available to God's bride just thinking now we should finish how about we pray Jesus we thank you so much And we want to acknowledge that you are our wonderful bridegroom. We're sorry for the times, Lord, where we've forgotten your name. And as a result, we've forgotten our name. Lord, help us to die to our pride and submit ourselves afresh to you. we We trust that you are faithful and that you are a good husband to your bride. We believe that you will make us beautiful. We look forward to the day where the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness is always heard. Where your people are finally one with you. We'll see your face and will be like you. And Lord, I pray as Revelation 19 verse seven says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Lord we thank you. In Jesus name I pray. Amen.